All right, you boldologist, we are just one week away from my live lesson. If you have not claimed your spot yet, go right now to register for the live lesson. It is on September 30th. That is a week from today and spots are limited and filling up fast. So I encourage you to go get signed up. What you will be learning during this live lesson is I will be giving you three takeaways on how to reclaim your sense of self, how to strengthen your relationships, basically how to get to know yourself better so that you can show up better for your life and go after those goals and intentions that you have for yourself so that you can, or even just to better understand what those goals and intentions are so that you can create and strengthen the relationships in your life, whether that is the relationship with yourself, with somebody else, with a partner, with a spouse, with a co-parent, with a child, or if that relationship is with a situation in your life, this is going to help you. I have three takeaways that are going to change your life and get you started on the path that you are wanting to head down so that you can take bold action and you can live the life you want to live. Go register now. Link is in our show notes, or you can head to www.theboldlogic.com forward slash live lesson. Hope to see you there. It's okay to call out somebody and say, hey, look, this isn't okay how you're treating me. And this is why. And I'm not going to stand for it. I sort of see on some level that that was kind of the position I took when I decided that like, hey, conversion therapy, no more. Like, this isn't love anymore. This isn't a relationship built on collaboration. This is a relationship that's being built on me being told what was wrong with me and over and over and over again. And I couldn't go anywhere. I was stuck in quicksand. What's up, everybody? This is Matt here with the Husband in Law Podcast. This is where we share our stories of love, ex-love, marriage, ex-marriage, divorce, ex-divorce, and coming out of a closet that needed to be opened and so much more. This podcast is for those who are looking to up their relationship game by understanding first yourself, then others, like your wife, your husband, and your wife's ex-husband on a whole new level. Welcome to the Husband-in-Law Podcast. Let's get this party started. Okay, so it's my turn to do an introduction. <laughs> Jessica's making me do it. Are Steve's you nervous? Super, super pumped about it. I am a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. I think you like make people think that I make you do everything. <laughs> She does, people. It's true. I'm just that bossy. So we have a guest on tonight, Tyler Christensen. Welcome, Tyler. He is a a friend of mine. I feel like I've known him for a zillion years, even though we actually only met this year. Right, Tyler? That's a lot of years. And tell me that. Tell me that was not your same sentiment. Like. No, absolutely. I mean, Jimmy and Sarah and everyone has been talking about Steve for years. I have to meet Steve and I have to, you know, I mean, that's been the thing for years and years and years. You're going to love Steve. And then we had a magical night of dancing together. (laughs) I love that. We did indeed. It was kind of a love affair, for sure. (laughs) Because Tyler is good friends with Jimmy and Sarah that are Boise friends here of mine. Uh And we do, you know, we, we do that yearly trip to McCall. And uh, which is also where I met Jessica. Yeah, I was gonna yes. say, is this the first time you guys met? That was the first time we met. Oh, that's funny. But literally, when we got like, I cannot tell you how many times Jimmy and Sarah have said, "Wait, you've never met Tyler?" <laughs> <laughs> Over like the last six years. But so finally, we met in McCall, and it was just like, "Hey, it's about freaking yeah. time!" Like, <laughs> I feel like I know you. So yeah. 
Totally. And and we did have some magical dancing. And it such looked pretty and, awesome. Was it, was it so, at the yacht club? No, it was a. Oh, okay. Well, it, we rent a little cabin. <laughs> it is a one room cabin that's like a hundred years old, and still has carpet and vinyl and whatever and wallpaper from like it's the sixties awesome. or something. Maybe it's not it is awesome. Years old. It's probably from the sixties. But we always get that, and then we just cram it full of people. It's literally a one room cabin. We have we had eight people there one year. So this was <laughs> How, the. The McCall Winter Carnival, you guys go up and yes, okay. which is like the they do the ice sculptures and the this the, the they do a Mardi Gras parade every year, which I that don't really fun. understand why. I didn't go this last year because everybody was sick. Okay, mm. either I got oh, sick or the right. kids got sick. The yeah, kids Matt, were you sick guys were and all then you got sick. Yeah. Oh, we were all supposed to go together. Yeah, we were. Yeah. Matt, Jessica, and, and me then you wouldn't and have met kids. Tyler again. I know. We you would have missed him again. But Matt, you and the kids were sick, so instead Jessica took. Her mom, and, and then Penny. it was going to be weird if I went and stayed in a cabin with Jessica and her mom. So <laughs> I was do. like, "All right, well, I'm bailing, and I'm going to go stay at the other cabin with my other friends that are going to be there." And Tyler. And, and so, Tyler, yes. Yeah. To those people that think we don't have any boundaries in this relationship, there's a boundary. <laughs> there's evidence we do. There's a boundary. <laughs> Steve doesn't stay at the cabin when Matt's not there. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a conversation had, which was basically, "Hey." Sorry, but you're now uninvited to McCall because <laughs> it would be weird if you were there. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, it would be. I wasn't uh, sad about that, though, because that way I got to. So we it. were excited that it all worked out the way it did. Yeah. Now yeah, you're part of our life. But yeah, Jessica yes. and Tyler met at the parade. You're right. Yep. Yes. And then we did go to the Yacht Club, Matt. Oh, and, awesome. And we danced the night away on that <laughs> dance floor. It's like this super, like, hick country well, it's in McCall, Idaho. Super, like, it was hysterical. So bro-y, I mean, right? it was just so. We walk in there, and I think we fairly do a fairly good job of assimilating in most environments, but we kind of stood out a little bit. <laughs> you know, just, just a just, little. I think mostly we stood out because of our sort of unique energy as a group of friends. Uh-huh. And then we just kind of remember the DJ had no idea what songs. Oh to my play. gosh, she was awful. She literally, terrible. she literally leaned on us all night to pr- to just feed her the right songs. Like really? at some point, she literally like over. she like came out and found us on the dance floor. And was like, "You guys, I'm out of songs. What should I play next?" <laughs> oh dear! And we're like, "Not so Shania we Twain." Kind of got the party started. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. was a lot of fun. Everybody and needs friends like that. It's kind of that's that right. way every year. Like when we do that, I I kind of so thoroughly enjoy just like so standing out in that crowd like i have never seen so much camo everyone was wearing camo yes i like to think that in a weird way in this like really dominant like hetero space we kind of smuggled in some queerness and we were just kind of like whether people knew it or not we were kind of just doing our little thing and And it was just kind of allowed a lot of people to kind of loosen up and it was just fun and, and how many people came up to us and just said, oh my, oh my gosh. gosh, I love you guys. We just want to <laughs> hang out with you. <laughs> Isn't that the thing, though? Like, I always remember, you just go have fun. Yeah. And then you attract yeah. people. Like, don't be the person standing on the wall. Go have fun. Right. Be like, yeah, allow that energy to be contagious. Like, be the one that, like, kind of inspires other people to let loose. And- yeah. So next year, are you guys yeah. going to get rainbow camo? Rainbow camo. I don't know. I wasn't supposed to be here 
obviously, oh, yeah. this entire <laughs> oh, yeah. time. You okay. might be here till next year. So I we might really be. have not. We yeah. should introduce Tyler. Yeah, we haven't actually done <laughs> yeah. an introduction. So, okay. Okay. so tell us where you have been for the last several years. Okay, so, tell, so, us, uh, tell us why we hadn't last... met. <laughs> tell us about yourself a little bit. Sure, Let's start sure, sure, there. Sure. So, for the last eight and a half years, I've been living in Washington, D.C. Okay. I actually moved there from Boise. Um, I was living in Boise before I moved to D.C. So, I lived in Boise for about two and a half years, I think it was. And I went there for graduate school. So I initially went there to get my master's, my MFA in creative writing from American University, where I was a merit fellow. And then DC is this place that you just, I don't know, it, I, I fell in love with it in a lot of yeah. ways, but it's a love-hate at times. Like most like really densely populated places, it just, it can be work to live in a place like that. But I just really fell in love with it. And while I was getting my master's, it was a three-year master's that so included both studio classes, so workshop classes where we would bring in original writing and we would workshop it with our colleagues, as well as non-studio or academic coursework, so classes in literature, in the study of literature, etc. And then it also included for my particular track, a teaching composition track. And so I had kind of gone into my master's knowing that I wanted to teach and I wanted to teach literature. And so I got into this and then I kind of just fell in love and kind of stumbled upon queer theory and philosophy and sort of just scholarship in that realm. And I was like, maybe I want to get a PhD. And so I, I was dating a guy at the time who was in the PhD program at GWU, George Washington, which is a school that's about a mile and a half from AU. And he was in the program there in the American culture, American literature and culture track. And it's kind of this marriage of cultural studies with the study of literature, which is kind of what I love about literature is the ways in which it can, it is this thing that limbs so closely with reality and can be a commentary on our lives and what's happening in the world. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to, give it a try and see what happens. And so I applied and I got in and, and I got on a full scholarship. And so awesome. uh, I had the opportunity to uh, start the program there and study with Robert McCrewer, who is a queer and disability theorist, who's kind of wow. top of the field for his particular work. Um, queer and what? Out. Dis- disability. disability. Okay. So disability studies is also a field of study that's often, it's a kind of newer field of study, but it's a field of study that emerges out of this sort of like academic study of queerness and huh. also the disability studies and, and also the disability movement and that happened in the 20th century. And so anyway, it's, uh, it's all sort of wrapped up in also thinking about, again, literature and the ways in which literature often literature is representation of often a representation of difference and differences and different lives and different people. And so the greatest gift that I, you know, I think that literature can give us the thing that I teach my students is, is empathy, right? So we read Mm -hmm. in order to understand people who are not like ourselves. And that's how we come to a greater sense of understanding, a greater sense of empathy, a greater sense of love for other people. And so that's, kind of the work that I was doing for the last eight and a half years in DC. And then I just was exhausted, (laughs) to be completely honest. I got to, I was, last fall, I was, uh, so fall 2019, I was teaching three classes at AU. 
I was bartending and I was working on my dissertation and I was just exhausted. And I had the academic year off, but I was still on fellowship. And so my parents kind of just intuited because that's what parents do, right? Yep. Is they intuit these things about us, whether they know them or not. And they were like, hey, why don't you come home for a little bit? And so the, initially the idea was just like, I'm just going to come home for like an extended Christmas break <laughs> and just kind of re-up and then and go back to DC. But I was like, why don't I just go home? Yeah. <laughs> and like, see what happens. <laughs> and so well, I... Well, look what happened. This was the beginning of 2020. Oh my gosh. I, I, yeah, <laughs> this was before COVID, which is crazy. <laughs> so it was like this strange thing too, that like, if I were still in DC, I would be alone. I would yeah. have lost my bartending job. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to pay that extensive of a rent. I mean, there was a lot of things that really fell in line for me by coming home. It was just a kind of crazy idea at the time. And tell us where home is. Well, I was going to say, now now tell us where home is, because that's why it's a crazy idea. Uh, It is. This is is a very good point. Because it ain't D.C. Idaho. Rexburg, Rexburg, Idaho. Um, So, which I think all of you know well. I think probably some of your listeners. Oh, I'm sure. From Rexburg. If you don't know, Rexburg is the little Mormon university and not much else. It's BYU, Idaho. And that's about all that's there. (laughs) So that's a lot of. So so now it's BYU, Idaho and a a professor of queer studies. Yes, pretty much. (laughs) I love the diversity you brought to Rexburg. (laughs) So do you go to Retrix and have dance parties? Retrix. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I I think Retrix is now like a a printing company. It's called Alpha Graphics. Oh, dang. Because Retrix was a... So I have another question. So one of my favorite restaurants, because I just, I never went to Rexburg for school or anything, but... My, some of my friends did, uh-huh. and one of my favorite restaurants was a place called Fong's. Oh, yeah. Do you know Fong's? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we would it's go. still here. Oh, really? I mean, we I think it's still the Fong's. same ownership, oh. the same people. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll be coming not, not to much visit. Not changes in this town. Okay. <laughs> Actually, here's, a, here's another crazy story. On that same trip that I fell in love with Fong's, I was carded for buying Bark's root beer Wow. At the local grocery store in Rexburg. Uh, why? Because they thought it was alcohol. I'm like, this is root beer. It's got you caffeine in it. You can't buy alcohol in Rexburg. But <laughs> it's root beer. Right? Isn't that- but like, okay, so here I'm having this weird moment of thinking that like, I feel like there was a weird time where they, there was, maybe Barks had caffeine in it? Barks oh. has caffeine. Barks does have it caffeine. Does. And Did you get carded? There, they, like when I was younger, we couldn't buy it without a parent. Oh my gosh! I, I I could be totally making that up, but I like you're like you bringing that up just brings me to this like memory in my mind that is just like so that far back nuts. there that now suddenly has rushed forward, and That's I'm trying hilarious. to make sense of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this I is mean. why it's crazy that he's now back in Rexburg. Idaho. Yeah, I think and, you guys and, are getting the picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think also too to contextualize it too, it would make sense to sort of start from like the fact that. I left Rexburg 16 years ago when I came out and kind of, it wasn't even that I left it. I was fleeing it in a yeah. way. 
So, I mean, I listen, I, I just went to Salt Lake. So I went one town over, but <laughs> to, to, um, to the other, it was big. It Mormons. was definitely <laughs> the motivation for leaving was definitely like leaving behind. Some yeah. Of, you know, it was, I was leaving the church. I was coming out and it was sort of for tumultuous yeah. kind of reasons. So you were raised so, in the LDS church. Yes. Okay. So I, just a little bit more backstory there. So um, actually when I was in the second grade, my dad got a job in a small town uh, in, that's west of Rexburg called Mud Lake. And I think, Steve, you know somebody from Mud Lake or uh-huh. something? A girl, yes. I, a girl I had a crush on in college. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to have and crushes so, on girls, um, people. <laughs> and so it's a small, 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 small town. I mean, it's 125 people. Wow. Uh, it's, it's just sort of you come over this hill off of I-15 and it's just this valley of farming. It's just a, a giant farm. It sounds exquisite, Mud Valley. Oh, it, it's just utterly gorgeous. You know, <laughs> right in the middle is this man-made lake called Mud Lake that was really just there for um, irrigation. Um, <laughs> so as you can imagine, it was a really glamorous life growing up there and being the closeted gay kid. Now, wh- so, now, now you brought um, up your dad got a, a job in Mud Lake. Yeah. So my dad, my dad grew up on a farm growing up in Shelley, Idaho, and um, had farmed all his entire life. And then just some things changed in his family, and he ended up getting a job with the Bank of Commerce, which is an agricultural bank. And so he took on this role as the agricultural bank loan officer, and he managed the branch out in Mud Lake. So obviously, as you can imagine, that entire it was all farmers. So very yeah. rural, um, conservative. Very rural, very conservative. Um, and my mom was a school teacher. So my mom taught several grades, but her master's degree is in, is in literature as well. Awesome. So we have sort of some things in common there. And so uh, that's where I grew up. And then my family moved to Rexburg. And then I grew up Mormon and everybody in Mud Lake is Mormon. Like, I mean, it was like, there's my high school is like 220 kids, I think maybe. And I would say 210 were Mormon. Wow. And I sort of, out of defiance, managed to be friends with like the 10 kids that weren't Mormon. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I grew up in that area um, and grew up LDS and very active in the church, went to seminary, did all of those things. And yeah, and it was tough. I was bullied a lot. I was sort of, <laughs> I was sort of just incapable of being anything but myself. <laughs> and so I was just like, you know, as hard as I would try to be like, you know, be in sports or whatever it was that people people sort of needed me to be in or, or I needed to do in order to survive in that environment, I kind of just always resisted and, and fumbled over myself in that way. And um, so I was into musical theater. I was the editor of the high school newspaper. I um, was in student council. I did all of the things that were sort of the opposite of what uh, what a young man is expected to do in that area. Other than I did also, I did move pipe. I did move sprinkler pipe. So <laughs> that and, I did. And potatoes. So, yes, exactly. Yeah, a good foundation so, for... Yeah. So, for and then I also, I, so then when I was, I was 19, <laughs> I, uh, I actually did two missions. I don't know if Steve knows this. Wow. So I did a performing and dancing mission, what we were called young performing missionaries in Nauvoo. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I did that for four months before yeah. my mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Cool. So, And so yes. at what point did you come out to your family? So when I was younger, my parents kind of knew because I had struggled with self-harm and I told the bishop about this. And then the bishop, because I was on the age of 18, had to tell my parents 
that this was something that was going on. I, I, I don't know for a fact that he told them anything other than the fact that there was self-harm happening. And so early on, I mean, obviously, I think that they knew kind of at the time why it was happening. And then... And what um, age was that? I was 16. I was around 15, 16 okay. around that time. And then when I was 18 and I was going to Rick's College at the time, mm. I got caught Go Vikings. with gay pornography. And mm. that was a moment where, of course, it was, you know, just full on denial. No, 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 I'm not gay. You know, I'm just, yeah, I really empathized in, with, with Steve's story. Yeah, Jessica just patted um, me on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, caught by you know, who? Just, just uh, well, so what Family? happened is, is my brother who was at home visiting for the weekend, went through my parents' history on the computer, no. which is not a thing that at the time I knew was something you could do. And so he told Wait, my parents about it. That's how I learned about computer history as well, when I got caught. Uh, that's how you got caught? <laughs> <laughs> All right, carry on. Right. Carry on. So anyway, so that happened. And of course, it was just full on denial. It was just, mm. um, you know, and so it was interesting because sort of my parents' corrective at that particular time was that like you just need to go to work, like you need to like you need to keep busy, like you know you know just have, they just have a very like sort yeah. of really sweet blue collar mentality about things. Like if your hands are busy, you know idle hands are the devil's playthings, right? So that was kind of their their resolve about that. But it wasn't until sort of where the beginning of all of this is, the story is, and sort of where the beginning of the memoir starts that I've been working on is on my mission, when I had been sort of struggling, not just with the kind of lie or image that I was trying to keep up about with myself, but also that I was really struggling with the church. So I served my mission in Atlanta, Georgia. And prior to going to Georgia, I had never been exposed to any other religion ever in my life. I mean, ever. Yeah. Yeah never had gone to another church or anything like that. Um, I mean, I, obviously, some of my friends in high school were not Mormon, but, um, you know, they, I think, sort of, for their own reasons, were really quiet about that because they weren't sort of in that dominant subject position, and so they didn't feel very comfortable talking about their faith. And so I got out of my mission, and I was sort of, like, just very gung-ho for like all missionaries, right? So it was funny. I was sort of listening back to some of the episodes, and I was listening to the Charlie Bird episode and listening to, to Steve and, and, and Charlie kind of banter about how, how good they were about keeping the rules. I was like, let's just break them all. Like, <laughs> let's just like, like, why do I have to do this? Like, why? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it was just, I, I just kind of, and it wasn't that way from the beginning. It became that way. I just started to ask questions yeah. uh, about, you know, why we were supposed to do certain things. Why you know, why we needed, you know, a certain number of, of contacts per week or why we needed to have a certain number of discussions and what, what quantifying that would do for someone's conversion process and, yeah. and, and what that all means. Which if someone doesn't know, when you're serving a mission, missionaries have at least had, I don't know about now, but I don't very, think they do anymore, but... very structured. You were expected to have given this many lessons this week, yeah. contacted this many new people and established this many... Et cetera, et cetera, and had this many baptisms. It was very, it was very numbered, very structured. That these are the steps to being a successful missionary. Yeah, so that's absolutely. what you're referencing, right? That's 100 percent what I'm referencing. And so, you know, we have so, these weekly goals, and of course, obviously, I wanted to meet these weekly goals. But it was just we would meet people that were just so wonderful and lovely, and and God fearing, and also 
religious and really loyal to their particular church. And so I'd sort of say to like my companion, like, we don't like, like, we don't need to follow up with these people. These are wonderful people who love God already. And like, you know, they have their faith and that's totally fine. And like, and of course, then I was looked at like, I was like, I was bad at the job. I was just bad at the job. (laughs) Because we were there to teach and to convert. And I just was not great at it. Like, I was like, Oh, that was such a great conversation. You know, I, I wish them well, and they'd be like, "No, we 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 gotta we gotta get the reschedule. Like, we gotta we gotta follow up." You know, and it was just, I was maybe a little naive even about the sort of goal of what, and not that I didn't know what the goal of the mission was because I knew what the goal of the mission was. But I think you know, as Steve is even referencing, that's changed a lot since I went. Yeah, I think I. Was, I- if I were on a mission, I think I would be more along the same lines as you. Mm. As like, oh, these are such great people. Like, they're fine. Let's go find somebody who like needs some help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I could see how so, that would. Yeah. <laughs> so, so combining that with, I had some missionary companions that were tough. We didn't get along well. That they were concerned that I was trying to hit on them, or they would call me a faggot, or there was all sorts of just sort of. You know, and again, I was trying as hard as I possibly could to like deepen my voice, to to act as macho and as straight as I possibly could, to do all of these things to sort of conceal. I mean, because it's a it's a thing that's practiced. It's a thing that you learn early on, especially if you know from an early age that like survival is, you know, trying to avoid as much attention as you possibly can. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so it kind of came to a head with one companion, and we had to have a sit down with the mission president. And uh, my mission president, by the way, was fantastic. So we eventually sort of worked out our differences, but it just started sort of the spinning of this wheel for me that I couldn't get out of where uh, it was kind of like a, a spiral of depression and anxiety and panic about not just sort of what I was doing there on the mission, but also sort of like what was going to be my future mm. and how much longer could I keep up this lie about myself and about who I was. And so I, there was one specific night um, that I, after many, many nights of like not being able to sleep well and being super anxious and then, you know, missing alarms in the morning and then feeling that guilt because my poor companion was like, Elder Christensen, please come on, we got to go, we gotta, <laughs> we've got work to do. And just sort of feeling that weight, I kind of just had this like total like meltdown. And here's where like, the joke is, that's kind of funny, <laughs> is in this particular apartment, we, it was a really great apartment. It was like the nicest apartment I had my mission. We had a really big walk-in closet. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to take... And I was, and you know, as you all know too, that privacy when you're a missionary is really hard to come hard by. Hard to come by. And so I grabbed the phone <laughs> and I locked myself in the closet. <laughs> and I paged my mission president, like the 911 page... And he called me, and that's when I came out of the closet, in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just, on the phone, just really emotionally, I just said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't lie about who I am. I don't want to, I want to go home. I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. I can't keep up this lie. It's just too hard. And to add more context too, this is 2002, and at this time... It was 1993 that Boyd K. Packer gave the talk that like the three greatest threats in the church were intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals. 
you know, Ezra Taft Benson saying in the miracle of forgiveness that, you know, homosexuality is a sin against nature and that the, you know, it, and, and akin to murder and that the only way to, you know, to get through it is to, to pray. And believe me, I, my knees were calloused. I mean, they were calloused. And so I was just sort of, I just was hopeless. And he said, look, have you done anything with anybody on the mission? Have you, had any, have you violated any of the rules? And I said, no, I, I haven't done anything, you know. And he said, okay, well, I, I know this person. I know this guy. He had a guy. And he was like, I think you should go talk to him. And so we kind of just talked about how that would go. And he was like, what do you want to do as far as your parents are concerned? And here's what was interesting. He was saying, I don't think the church's insurance will cover it because it's a pre-existing condition. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> look, not everybody has the same access to language. You know, I mean, I, I think that yeah. in a lot of ways for him, it was just things that he'd heard, he'd been told. And so I, I try to be very understanding of, of that particular thing. But, it, you know, and, and, but at that time to me, I was like, okay, great. Yeah, whatever. Like, uh, you know, yeah, this is a pre-existing condition. You know, um, I'll do whatever you got to do, you know. And so he's like, your parents are probably going to pay for it. So he's like, do you want me to call them? Or do you want to call them or do you want me to call them? And I said, oh, I, I definitely want you to call them. Yeah. Like, you definitely want you to call them. So Tyler, it sounds like you had a lot of trust in your mission president. I did. He'd never given me any reason not to trust him. Yeah. And I think part of it was, too, even when I wasn't great at missionary work, he had a lot of trust in me. Yeah. Um, which is huge for someone that's young, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that builds people's confidence, So you know. So the reason why I bring that up is because I, I see in the relationship that Jessica and Steve had, there was a lot of trust that Steve had in Jessica and vice versa. There was a lot of trust in Jessica with Steve. And that was a mutual trust. And uh, there definitely has to be that mutual trust in order for, I don't know, just trust in a conversation to even happen. Yeah, to even share something like that requires yeah. on some level that you're, you're one, I mean, it was a combination of things that, I mean, I was certainly kind of in duress, yeah. by, you know, yeah. but I also did trust him. I also knew that I could tell him and I didn't know what that would mean because, you know, there's, I don't know if you guys ever had this on your missions, but like, you know, the mission, the thing that circulated on our mission was the only way you go home is if you get sent home in a body bag. You know, you don't, you don't get sent home. You just don't do it. And so it was like, I did not want to by any means be sent home dishonorably because I didn't want to face that, that disappointment with my family by yeah. any means. But I was also at this place where I was like, I, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. You know, I just didn't know what else to do. Yeah. So, so mission president calls your family. Yes. Your mom and dad. Yeah. So he calls them and he tells them what's going on. And he says, I know somebody who's going to help Tyler get over this and we are going to, we're going to, we're going to fix this issue. And so don't worry about it. You know, we're going to get through this. And so, so then I had a conversation with them and, you know, and my, you know, my dad who is so lovely and sweet, he's just, you know, <laughs> he's this, you know, farm boy from Idaho. And he's like, let's nip this thing in the bud, you know? And I'm just like thinking, absolutely. Yes, please. Let's, let's extract this thing from my body. You know, you know, if, if that's what it takes. So long story short, it's a strange experience of going to see my conversion therapist who that's not what he was called. And that's not 
how it was scripted to me by any means. And that's not really actually how the church even scripts it. Um, even now, I think that's not how it's scripted. I didn't know, I had to have someone take me there. I was in a bike area. And so, you know, it was how much information do I tell this missionary, this elder that's driving me to this therapy appointment. And so to, to LDS Family Services. And so I had some really long, very quiet rides to LDS Family <laughs> Services with these elders that were my... Chauffeurs. That were my chauffeurs, yeah. And so I, I get to my first session and he, his name is Jared Taylor. He still practices. He's still, um, I think he's in Logan, Utah now. And he is just this really bright, wonderful, really lovely and loving man who kind of starts in by saying, you know, like, like anything, like tell me, like any therapeutic relationship, right? Like, tell me about yourself. Tell me about the issue, what's going on. And so I start in. And so he gives me my first assignment, which is to write this chronological history of the problem of same-sex attraction. And so he kind of, this, this first meeting is sort of this diagnostic meeting, this sort of like, well, this is what it is. You have same-sex attraction and it's probably caused by a number of sort of stereotypical things, an overbearing mother, an absent father, not having um, sort of properly socialized with other men, you know, sexualizing those relationships, you know, just a number of different things that are sort of used to pathologize and, and talk about how sexuality is not just even within the, the realm of the church, but, but sort of outside of the realm of the church. You know, you look at the history of sexuality and starting in the 19th century, when the medical establishment, you know, takes, sort of takes over this institution of sexuality, it starts to take on the ways in which any kind of marker of difference was, and especially sexual difference, was seen as sort of pathological. Hmm. And that's sort of what sets up the field of sexology. And you have all of these men that are making up rules and ideas about how people should behave and what differences, and, and, and then Freud, and then Kinsey, and everything else. And so that's kind of how that relationship with my conversion therapist started. And, and so... Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there if you guys have any questions or I just feel like I'm talking a lot, so I'm sorry. No, you're great. Yeah, you're fine. So I wanted to touch on this, you have already, but just conversion therapy in general. Explain to us what that is to someone who doesn't know that terminology. So, Like me, gone, I don't know what that means. Sure, yeah. So it's gone under a number of different names over the years. Sexual orientation change efforts, reparative therapy, conversion therapy, it's been sort of co-opted and rebranded in a number of different ways over the years. I think most famously recently, have either of you or any of you read the book Boy Erased by Garrett Conley or seen the movie? Mm-mm. So it's about his experience with Love in Action, which is a really famous evangelical organization that is uh, sort of claims to, and it is probably the most famous, um, claiming to be able to cure um, homosexuality up to like 86% is what I think that their statistic was. And so, yeah, so it's this idea that basically sexuality is a choice that, and again, it's explainable, it's pathological, it's something that's happened. It's sometimes attributed to sexual abuse, to you know, um, a number of different things. Basically this idea that homosexuality can be explained and if it can be sort of explained and it is observable, then it can also be changed. And so in those sessions, there's a number of different things that usually take place. 
often it's sort of this time spent talking about things that you felt were triggering during the particular week or um, thought, you know, negative thoughts that you had and negative meaning like any kind of thoughts about somebody of the same sex, sexual thoughts, impure thoughts, and then coming up with a sort of set of ameliorative or sort of behaviors that you will, will help you to change. To avoid um, those thoughts and feelings. Exactly, okay. exactly. So singing a hymn. So I wore a rubber band that I would snap on my wrist all the time. Or one of the things that they do too is they suggest like, don't hang out with girls. Don't do f- typically female activities like shopping or uh, avoid gossip. Or, you know, like there was just these really interesting, it was really interesting the ways in which a lot of the prescriptive, you know, sort of, uh, the ways in which they thought they, they could fix it was is these really gendered ways was that mm-hmm. like if you know do more masculine things low like I got told constantly to to watch how I was speaking and to lower lower the register of my voice and to to take on you know typical masculine gestures like adjusting the crotch area or whatever you know I mean these were just all things that and and listen I was like so committed. You were following these rules. Oh, my, I was so to the T, like yeah. just every day, like conscious of every move. So Steve, every behavior, didn't, a counselor, didn't a counselor of yours say, hey, start working on an engine or something. So you got a VW bus and you're like, yeah, this is yeah, manly. It was, Ooh. Developing it was traits a, he found attractive. I went through for Evergreen which was an organization that, which which honestly, Tyler, I didn't, well, let me answer your question, Matt. But yes, it had me identify traits that I considered to be masculine, that I admired in men that I'm attracted to, and then put forth the effort to develop those, those traits. masculine traits in myself. And the two that I thought of right off the bat were cycling and, cycling and mechanics. I yeah. liked guys that were runners and cyclers and and I, that worked on cars. So I did both of those things. And yeah. And, you know, develop that skill in myself. And hey, let it be known, yesterday, I changed a wheel bearing on my camp trailer on the side of <laughs> Highway 93. See? See how, see how butch I am, Tyler? So butch. <laughs> so butch, but still so gay. And, uh, <laughs> and that's the thing, like, can we call, it can doesn't we call the determine whether you're so butch, but still so gay. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter. Like, that's, oh... It yeah, just, so I mean, and that's the but, thing is like oft, a lot of this conversation, a lot of what happens with this is they conflate or or sort of use synonymously, you know, gender presentation, terminology, yeah. masculinity, femininity with sexuality and desire and all of that kind of stuff. And so it becomes a really confusing conversation that happens, especially for the person that's going through it, because you're, I think, you know, we all tend to, well, I don't actually, I don't think this, I think this now, because I'm a gender studies professor, I, I, I know the distinctions between, you know, gender and sexuality and sex and desire and all of those things. And they're not the same as each other. There's, there is a relationship between them all, but they are yeah. not the same. They are distinct. Steve, you were going to say about Evergreen and I, I cut you off. I apologize. Well, I was just going to say that I had never considered the therapy that I did to be conversion therapy until hearing more of your experience with it. And because see, conversion therapy, when you hear about that, you think of like back in the 70s when someone would like 
They'd like hook electrodes up to your genitalia and then like flash a pornographic image in front of you and like zap your (laughs) chunk to make it a very negative, to associate a negative painful feeling with something that you otherwise found pleasurable. Like that's what I considered conversion therapy. That's a horrifying thing. It didn't get that far, right, Tyler? No, I mean, so there, I mean, there is a history of that with Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean, obviously, did you see this movie, Latter Days, Steve? Mm-hmm, yeah. Did you ever see that movie? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that was, like, one of the first movies I saw, like, during this period after my mission, where I was still in conversion therapy and dating women and going through all of that, before finally deciding to, to abandon that, I, where I sort, of, sort of secretly watched Latter Days because it was this it's, really controversial... It's like a... Um, it's like a... a- a gay chick flick, kind of. <laughs> well, I guess is it a chick flick? It's a little I mean, it's gay, kind of, little gay romance, it's, it's but it also borderline sort of like trauma porn. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, it's this story of this Mormon missionary who ends up having a love affair with somebody who lives in the apartment complex that he lives in as well, <laughs> and he gets sent from permission, his mission, and his family rejects him, and he has to go to conversion therapy. But and it he, shows a disciplinary council. Scene. That's like the one thing I remember is that it shows wow. a legit disciplinary council. Yeah. Of course, it's like it, not terribly accurate, but yeah, <laughs> everyone shows, always like, asks me, they're like, oh my gosh, did you have one of those one of those court things like on latter days? <laughs> yeah. So it shows the electrotherapy thing, and it's, um, anyway... It's an interesting movie, but I remember it sort of being this thing, being like, gosh, like, and, and it's interesting, actually, because, you know, you talked about how, you know, not talking, it wasn't until you talked to me that you were like, oh, wow, actually, like, I remember yeah. we had this conversation yeah. when we were at the cabin. Right. And, and it was interesting because when I was in Georgia, still on my mission, one of the things that he would do for me during my sessions is instead of actually me sitting and talking to Jared every time, I would just sit and watch Evergreen videos. And Here's the thing that really stood out to me about those videos that I found and still find so interesting about the church's relationship with its gay members now, and especially those that choose to stay in the church. Uh, Steve and I kind of privately talked about the Charlie Bird episode a little bit. And um, is at the end of those videos, and I don't remember, did you go to Evergreen Sessions? Did you actually go? I did, Steve? yeah. Yeah, in Colorado mm-hmm. Springs. There's, I went for about a year and a half. There's hugging that takes place, correct? Like you like hug other members or it's interesting because we, I don't remember Steve having this, but somebody was telling me the other day that their husband, like that was something they encouraged, was like a touching session almost to like and yeah. I was like, Oh my gosh. It was uh, a way they call it like clinical hugging. Like yeah, there's like uh-huh. like a way to like at the end of the session, they would allow these men to sort of just like it's like brotherly embrace. Like you could have this like just moment where you were like, like, I see you, you see me, we get each other. We're had this, this moment. And I was like, Whoa, like there, like you could sort of see, and it wasn't like the camera was panning in on anybody, but you could see this relief in their face of being able to have this sort of like intimate moment with somebody else and being able to just, just to touch someone Mm -hmm. that maybe, and, and, and I don't think it was at, all sexual. Yeah. I think it was just intimate. It was like, yeah. you know, it was like, you get me, you're going through this, you understand and how difficult this is. And to just be able to have that embrace by somebody else. Well, I think, Jessica, um, you, you mentioned this about the fact that when you came into the ward one time and just be able to hug yeah. somebody, hug another sister. Like even just being single and not having 
a relationship, like hugs can be very intimate, like not sexually, just a, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like there's yeah. that embrace of being seen. Yeah. Especially if you do feel like, I mean, especially because here's the thing that I think is so fascinating about your story, all of your story, um, is that <laughs> all of you actually know what it's like to come out in some way or another. Yeah. I mean, coming out is this like really capacious term, right? Like it's, it's huge. And we, we, yeah, and we've talked about this, how it's like sharing information that is potentially going to change a relationship. Yeah. And, and doesn't have to be gay. You be, yeah. And whether, you know, whatever it is, you know, yeah. I mean, you guys have sort of had to come out as having this really like fantastic working relationship as a, as a, as a sort of modern family. And that I'm sure has had, you've been met with some resistance about that, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so each of you sort of know on some level too, what it's like to kind of be singled out. I was just, you know, I was really thinking about Matt talking about, how he would sit in the back of, yeah. of the the, the um, in the in the gym or in the, in the you know the extender to the back of the sacrament or, you know the room the chapel sorry I don't know why it's been a long time since I've been in church that was that was the exact example I was thinking of of Matt you having to come out as a divorcee and a single yeah. Mormon dad and yeah what a struggle that was so for you, you all know what it's like to sort of feel that sense of like loneliness mm-hmm. that come that accompanies that feeling of of sort of being in the closet and being sort of outside of the closet. And then also too, what I think is really unique and interesting about your particular story too, is that, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from this historian, David Halperin, who is talking about the queer theorist, Eve Sedgwick, and she, and he's sort of talking about how, you know, sort of to be in the closet is sort of to also never be out of the closet. And I'm kind of botching that quote, but, you know, once you're kind of in the closet about something, you're kind of constantly coming out of the closet about it. And Steve, you probably know what this is like, especially Mm -hmm. as a gay man. And even with your own family, like even when you do find, you know, when you do say, Hey, look, this is who I am. They still are kind of like wanting that assurance of like, are you sure? Like, you know, what, you know, what's going on now? Are you going to ever come back to the church, da, 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 you know. So that brings up an interesting point. So I just got back from Rexburg, <laughs> Tyler. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sad that we didn't get together. I had, I so wanted to do that, but I was camping with my family right near Rexburg. And, but Sunday morning, we did a little church thing where they said, hey, being Sunday morning, I know we're all camping, but let's, we're going to take an hour and share a favorite scripture. And <laughs> I could tell everyone was like, What's so nervous when it got to my turn. Like, do we, do we, do we pass over him? Do we ask him to do it? Is he, what do we say? And and I shared a scripture. What was it? DNC eighty five fifty. Yeah, <laughs> I knew it. I thought of you while I did it because you already brought up that that's like, yeah. I think of you every time. <laughs> it's the one that I thought of. But, but anyway, it was a it was like an added layer of coming out to my family because my entire my siblings, my parents, my all my nieces and nephews are there, and I feel like really to my nieces and nephews, like they. I've not heard any of this from me, but it, but I said, you guys all know that I'm I'm not active in the church anymore, but I still very much can appreciate the like the beauty of a good message or like a good scripture and the, the things that I learned. Yeah, the, the lessons that I learned from the church that I still carry with me that, that still align with my beliefs. And so I don't know. Just you talking yeah, about like no. continual coming out that made me think. Yeah, of that, it's but. you know, I mean, that in and of itself is sort of this like micro. It's this microcosm of, of exactly what I'm talking about, which is that like sort of these on this ongoing process of like sort of being like, yep, this is who I am, and this is my relationship with with God, or this is my relationship with my family, or this is my relationship with my ex, you know, wife or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is this sort of ongoing process, and you know, and it is a really 
it's an, it's just a really interesting process. I don't even know how we fully got on the subject, but I think, but I, part of what I was talking about was this this moment that I was really observing with these evergreen videos and the intimacy there, and something that I really grapple with. With you know, I really respect Charlie Bird's journey. I actually bought his book. I've been reading it, mm. and I respect that he's sort of chosen to. I think he used the phrase like "sit in this space that God that he felt like God had kind of called him to sit in," which is this. I, I mean, listen, too hard for me. I couldn't do it. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, in part because I, I do have some issues with some of, you know, the ongoing, you know, doctrine. Yeah. And, and also I just, I needed to start my life in a different way. Yeah. I needed to claim that future that I'd been sort of, that had been sort of just sort of waiting for me in a lot of ways. You know, it's, um, I, I loved your, insights about that Charlie Bird episode. That's actually what landed you on the podcast is when you were messaging me all sorts of thoughts of, about different aspects of that. And I just loved your perspective on it and your your take on various things. And yeah. and I was I happened to have been here, I was upstairs in the hallway with Matt and Jessica when I was receiving your text messages and I was like, you guys listen to this. Listen to what my buddy Tyler yeah. listen to what his per, his takeaway was from this episode. And and then I was like, dude, we should get him on the on the podcast. That's how this, <laughs> how this happened. But I think I brought up the idea of like the ways in which for me, I feel like staying in the church would have really just been like adding on a wing can, to can my I closet. Read, can I read that? Because I, sure, yeah. I loved that like metaphor. Let me find it real quick. I don't know how articulate it was in text form, but it was very <laughs> it's articulate. It's pretty articulate. Every, everything, <laughs> everything you say or write is articulate, Tyler. Come on. Thank you. <laughs> I love I love the way you, I love I get to listen to you talk all day. So let's see. I find it really difficult. So you were saying you found parts of that episode difficult to hear. And mm-hmm. saying, I find it really difficult to accept when people come out as gay in the church and stay in the church. To me, it's like adding a wing onto the closet. You're still in the closet. It just got bigger. You made space for people to come and go. But you're still there ministering from inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that metaphor. Yeah. yeah. I totally, like I said, I, I really have a lot of respect for Charlie. I think also, too, what's really interesting is that in the last 20 years, like you know, since I was kind of going through all of this, so much has changed in the church. And so yeah. much has changed as far as policies and there's been a lot of back and forth and up and down. I know that there's been a lot of heartbreak for a lot of people too. And then there's been some joyous moments as well. And and so part of what happened for me, you know, sort of to bring this narrative or character arc to a full circle is that I found a different community. I found, yeah. you know, I found a different family and not a different family. I found, well, I, I found another family. I found new family members. I, you know, it's the biological, you have, we all have our biological families, right? If we're lucky, right? Yeah. And that's the thing too that's so interesting to me about Charlie's story is, wow, how lucky is he uh-huh. that he had the family that reacted the way they did. Like, just so fortunate. And I, I think he knows that. And it's something yeah. that he talks about in the book. But I thought that is not everyone's fortune. That is not everyone's story. And so, and anytime I talk about my students, I get emotional. <laughs> but, you know, to be this kid that went from the potato field in Mud Lake, Idaho, to having gone through what I did with conversion therapy, to now be able to be sitting in a classroom with kids 
that come from all walks of life just have a space where they can talk about their fears and be open about who they are and to have someone like myself be at the head of the classroom, to be this collaborator in this journey with them, to be able to affirm them and accept them for who they are, where they are, and to share with them the knowledge that I have gained over the years that has given me so much power to accept myself for who I am. It's been like the gift of my life. I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) And your course is gender studies and what? So right now I'm teaching a sexuality studies course, which which is really just... It is a course that looks at sort of sexualities sort of across the spectrum, but we start with the 19th century and we look a lot at the history of sexuality. Do you ever get students that sign up for your class thinking, oh, this is a lot different than I thought it was going to (laughs) be? You know, I what I get, Matt, is I get students who are come from really far, even more conservative backgrounds than my own, who are terrified to have these conversations and who don't even know or have the language to have these conversations and they to just see them go through that journey is just really incredible especially when they embrace it and especially when they they don't reject it because it's not that i'm like it's it's not a class with an agenda right it it really is a class where we're we're mining and looking at the history of sexuality from the 19th century into the 20th century and tracing it through different types of scholarship and from different perspectives. Where, and so, where does that, that curriculum come from? Well, you know, I inherited this class. I, I got hired for this job. And then the syllabus was a mess. And I just kind of took the things that had really meant a lot to me over the years that mm-hmm. had, uh, you know, in classes that I had taken, um, especially as a PhD student and things that I had been exposed to. Like I said, those things that really were like, just like, you know, talk about opening the brain and rearranging things and being like, whoa, like, how has this information been out there for the 39 years I've been alive? And I've never known about this, you know, and to have that like, aha moment, that light bulb come on for me. So I, you know, that's the stuff that I smuggle into these classes, whether they like it or not. And (laughs) And um, and so that's kind of a lot of what it is, is I bring in that curriculum, some of the things that have been meaningful for me. And then also I take a lot of feedback, just sort of it's trial and error a little bit too with these classes. You know, if I, if I teach a, a text that just doesn't really land well with students, I'll really try to get their feedback on things and, and ask them, you know, what was working about something and what wasn't and, and change it up or, or do things. Like I'm, I'm kind of going through that right now, actually. And I don't think we said it, but what, what universities are you at? So American University in DC and then George Washington University. So it's interesting. So so I teach sexuality studies at American. I teach a class at American that is cross-listed in literature. And sorry, I said I teach sexuality studies and then I teach a a class that's cross-listed in American studies and literature and that's about activism. And then I teach at GW right now, I'm teaching an American poetry class, but I have historically at GW taught uh, creative writing. So, so we, we got to wrap it up in a sec, but Jessica, did you have something? Yeah, I was going to say something. Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. You're cut off. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I love that you're doing this work and that exactly Thank like you. you're saying, like I can feel the love you have for these students and I know that they feel that. And that is just so important. Like that's, 
what I hope for people is that they find somebody that loves them and that helps them see the good in them so that they recognize that and so that they aren't feeling this pain and anguish and shame for being who they want to be. Yeah, you, I just, yeah. 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 One of the things that, good that work. I took away <laughs> Thank you. with you talking about your students especially was you are a collaborator and not a mediator. Yes. And I think, like I thought to my experience of when I was going through a divorce and going through all this, I wish there was a collaborator instead of a mediator. Yeah, and, I, yeah. it's a huge thing that I push in my classes is that I have just as much to learn from them as I, I hope that they will learn from me. And so collaboration, and I think, you know, like that's what we all want in all of our relationships, right? Yeah. right. Is collaboration. Is someone to like, be like, to team up with and be like, hey, you know, like, I'm trying to get through this as much as you are. Like, I've got my knowledge, you've got your knowledge. Let's, Let's put them together and do something here, you know? Yeah. Um, or at least pretend to do something, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> so, Seriously. You know, I, and one thing that I want to say to you that sort of my mantra, and this was something that, you know, there was a point during my master's when I was finishing up, this memoir that I've been working on has gone through so many iterations and people are like, where is it at? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, this first iteration that I had been working on, you know, my mentor at the time was, this is the lovely, lovely, lovely writer, Richard McCann, who um, changed my life in a lot of ways. And he was like, you're so angry on the page. You know, you're, you're so angry on the page. And he was like, you know, you've got to always, you've got to find a way to come from a place of love. And I just full, fully believe that. Like, you know, you always have to come from a place of love. And then I like to sort of tell my students the story and add on, the, the rest of the quote, which is from RuPaul, where she <laughs> says, always come from a place of love, but sometimes you have to set an MF or straight. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I, I, I sort of think about with this collaborative yeah. relationship that I have with my students is, and, and, and the ways in which I think that in, with life and with a lot of things that, you know, you always got to come from a place of love, but there are times too yep. where it's okay to call out somebody and say, hey, look, this isn't okay how you're treating me. This isn't okay what's happening. Yes. And, and, and this is why. And, and, it, and I'm not, I'm not going to stand for it. And I sort of see on some level that that was kind of the position I took when I decided that like, Hey, I, this like conversion therapy, no more. Like this isn't, this isn't love anymore. This yeah. isn't a relationship built on collaboration. This is a relationship that's being built on me being told what was wrong with me and over and over and over again. And I couldn't go anywhere. I was stuck in quicksand. Do you, and so it, I knew it had to change. Do you have any resentment of going through the this therapy? <sighs> you know, I would say yes, but I've gone through 10 years of therapy since that time. So, I mean, no, not, not resentment because again, and this is something that I know we need to wrap things up, but um, that I, I also really believe too is that like we all do the best that we can at the particular moments that yep. we're at, right? So at that time, I didn't have the knowledge base that I have now. Mm-hmm. My family didn't have the knowledge base that they have now. You know, I, I didn't have the language that I needed to to articulate how I was feeling and what I was going through. I just didn't have access to those particular important tools in my life yet. Mm-hmm. And so it took education, it took time, it took me investing in myself. It took risk. It took being scared and, and sort of stepping out on my own and my willingness to do that in order to access 
to be honest, those, those things, those, and, and yeah. then to expose myself to new people, new experiences, new yeah. ideas about, ab- about life. And, and that was really began to transform how I viewed my past. Yeah. And so I try really hard not to look back on it with any kind of negativity, but, but I think that it's also okay if people do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You got to feel some of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when and where can people read your memoirs? Okay, so <laughs> memoir is is two thirds done. I've got some people that are out. It's out right now. Some people are reading it, and so I'm still sort of working on that, finishing that up. But you can go to my website, which is ktylerc.com, and there you can see it's sort of a it's a newer website. It's in progress, but I have some links to some of the things I've written. I just recently published a chapbook, which is a, a small book of poetry called That Boy from Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, there's 10 poems in there that are all pretty autobiographical in form and a little sexy. So they are a little sexy. FYI. So I, like, I liked it. Very, very, very raw. Very like describing your experience of yeah. growing up yeah. as a closeted gay boy in Mud Lake. Like, yeah. I don't know. I haven't <laughs> read the whole thing, but exactly. the ones that I did read, I, I, I liked it. Thank you. So yeah, so that's where you can find me. I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm on Twitter, but uh, I try to keep some of those things a little private, just for other students, yeah. everything else. So, but what, yeah, what so. will the name of your your book be? Your memoir. So uh, gotten that far. Tentatively, I've actually been kind of workshopping this with Jimmy and Sarah a little bit, no. um, but sort of the working title right now is "Start from the Beginning." Mm. Okay, I like well, it. Start from watch the beginning. For start from the beginning, people. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks for being exactly. here. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. This, this was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, great Tyler. Great conversation to have. Yeah. We appreciate yes. it. Great to finally meet you. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> nice to meet you as well, Matt. Hopefully one day in person. Yeah, absolutely. Come to Boise soon. I will. I Do will. It. I will be there soon, I promise. Okay. So, bye, y'all. Thank Thanks, you. Tyler. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Husband-in-Law. All right. Now we have a challenge for you. We challenge you to go give someone a huge hug or send a simple gratitude note who needs to receive it specifically from you. If you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, please be sure to do so now. Also, don't forget to give us a review. We read every single one of them. Until next time, keep striving to make your relationship the best it can possibly be.